thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Past, Present, Future. And we are now at Essay 5 in this summer season about the great essays and the great essayists. Today, it's Susan Sontag and her essay Against Interpretation, published in 1964. It's not an essay about politics. It's an essay about art and criticism and intellectual life. But I think it's about politics too, and I'll try to explain why. If you've enjoyed this series about essays and essay writing, I am sure you will enjoy the London Review of Books, where you can read lots of brilliant essays, and if you subscribe, also have access to the archive, where there are essays about everything, including the one I talk about at the end of today's episode. You can subscribe for just £1 an issue for the first three months by going to lrb.me ppf. You get the latest issues, you get the magnificent archive. lrb.me ppf. In this series, I haven't said much about the titles of the essays that I've been talking about, or only in passing. I did say of the first two essays, Montaigne's An Apology for Raymond Sebon and Hume's Of Public Credit, that they were pretty terrible titles. I'm aware they're off-putting. It doesn't sound much fun. Civil Disobedience by Thoreau is better, though the original title, Resistance to Civil Government, is also not much fun. I think the 20th century ones have much better titles. A Room of One's Own is pretty much an unimprovable title. The Lion and the Unicorn is pretty great. Notes of a Native Son. But the essay I'm talking about today, I suspect, also has a slightly off-putting title. It's by Susan Sontag. It's called Against Interpretation. And it does sound quite intellectual, abstract, a bit remote, but not to everyone. For some people, the title is a part of the appeal of this essay. So one example of that is A.O. Scott, who for many years was the film critic of the New York Times. And in 2019, he published an essay of his own in his newspaper about his lifelong obsession, really, with Susan Sontag, about how she had shaped his way of thinking It's a kind of description of a love-hate-love relationship, though all on the page, because he had one chance to meet her and write a profile of her, and he was so preoccupied with her that he couldn't bring himself to do it. So it's not about his relationship with her in person. It's an intellectual relationship. And it begins when he's quite young, as a teenager, a curious, bookish, maybe a little bit nerdy teenager, in his parents' home, a middle-class home, as he says, in mid-century America, where they have on their bookshelves some intellectually aspirational books. And one of them grabs him and changes his life. And I just want to read A.O. Scott's description of what this book meant to him. So he says of his teenage self, I quote, 
I found a book with a title that seemed to offer something I desperately needed, even if, or precisely because, it went completely over my head, against interpretation. No subtitle, no how-to promise or self-help come on, a 95-cent Dell paperback with a front cover photograph of the author, Susan Sontag. Scott goes on. There is no doubt that the picture was part of the book's allure. The angled, dark-eyed gaze, the knowing smile, the bobbed hair and buttoned-up coat. But the charisma of the title shouldn't be underestimated. It was a statement of opposition, though I couldn't say what exactly was being opposed. Whatever interpretation turned out to be, I was ready to enlist in the fight against it. I still am, even if interpretation, in one form or another, has been the main way I've made my living as an adult. It's not fair to blame Susan Sontag for that, though I do. Something about this title captivated the teenage A.O. Scott. But in this reflection, much later in his life, he also captures something about how people often respond, continue to respond to Susan Sontag, which is he gets both the charisma, but also the implicit double standards that she seems to embody. She seems to represent the thing that she's against. Whatever this thing is, interpretation, it sounds like the business of writing, thinking, maybe even writing essays, interpreting the world, which is what Susan Sontag was, wasn't she? And yet here she is speaking out against it. He's against it himself, he's sure, and yet he makes his living doing it as a film critic. He doesn't blame Susan Sontag for it, but he does. And it also captures something else which is true of how many people have written about Susan Sontag from the 1960s onwards, when she made her name, which is that part of her charisma has to do with her appearance, how she looks on the cover of her books in articles about her. Women and men have often written about Susan Sontag's appearance and how astonishingly photogenic she was. But she was also the person who in one of her more celebrated essays and books from the 1970s, attacked photography and the idea that a photograph can tell the truth about anything. Photography, as Sontag describes it, is often a fake version of the truth, even a kind of lie because it gives the illusion that something is captured in that frame, in that image. And yet, as we all know, almost always whatever's in the image is only, at best, a tiny, tiny part of the truth. And yet Sontag herself was often projected, not just through her words, but through her image. And the people who write about Sontag often don't know what to make of this. Some of them are deeply admiring. Some of them are pretty much contemptuous. But they are all provoked by it, in one way or another. And against interpretation, and as A.O. Scott says in this 95 cent Dell paperback, is an embodiment of this. Of all of these contradictions, double standards that Susan Sontag has come for many people to represent. Something else to say about this essay is that it is pretty different from all the other ones that I've been talking about in the way that it's written. It's not a journey. It's definitely not a walk in the woods. It's not like reading an author take you by the hand and guide you as their thoughts evolve, or in Montaigne's case, stopping and pausing and checking you're still on board and offering you more tidbits to keep you going. It's 
pretty rapid. It's short. It's by some distance, I think, the shortest of the essays that I've been talking about. It's incredibly confident. None of the thoughts in this essay feel like Sontag is having them as she's writing them. They feel like she absolutely knows what she thinks and she is going to set it down as briskly as she can. It's not a walk. If anything, it's a run. It's breathless. You have to try and keep up. And you feel as you read it that she's not that interested whether you keep up or not, in that if you can't keep up, that's your problem, not hers. She's got the next thing that she wants to say. Bang, bang, bang. And she says it quickly, lucidly, and then it's done. And at the end of it, you feel like someone has really told you what they know they think. It's also an essay that is actually quite easy to summarise, and I'm going to try in a minute to summarise it, but it is endlessly suggestive and it can be read in lots and lots of different ways. And I'm also going to suggest the way that I read it, which has almost nothing to do with what Sontag was talking about. The summary is that it is, and this might sound ridiculous, it is against interpretation. That is, it's an essay arguing against what Sontag thinks writing in 1964 has become the presiding vice of intellectual life and academic life in the United States, but I think by implication also in Europe, which is people are over-interpreting things. They are spending too much time looking for the meaning behind whatever it is that they are writing about or experiencing. And she's talking here essentially about works of art in different forms, books, novels, paintings, plays, but everything really. There is a tendency always to think that the thing itself is not where the interest is and experiencing the thing itself is not where the most interesting writing can be done. What you want to do as a writer, an intellectual, a critic, an academic is search for the hidden meaning because there will be behind any work of art some deeper truths that the artist is conveying but that require interpretation you need help to get there and you have to push through and beyond the surface of things or as Sontag says the form of the thing to the truth that lies behind it and what's wrong with interpretation she thinks is that often it's pretentious and is a lot of words saying not very much but also that actually it is not what it thinks it is so the, the interpreters, the intellectuals, the critics, they think that what they're doing is going for depth because depth is what lies behind the surface of things. So interpretation is a version of deeper thinking than simple experience or, as Sontag puts it in this essay, innocence. But actually, if you push past the surface of things, the form in which things are expressed, to look for the hidden meaning, there is something both trite and also small c conservative about that because you are leaving the surface of things untouched. You're taking for granted the form in which things are presented, which means that the form isn't going to change much. Things are going to appear in the world the way that they traditionally appear in the world in the form of a conventional novel or a familiar work of art because you're so preoccupied with the business of, yeah, but there's something else going on here. There has to be. And any great artist will not just be communicating with you directly because greatness has to involve more than that, not least because for many of these writers and thinkers, their livelihood depends on there being more going on than that because there are many, many more words to be written 
if you can go after the meaning of things rather than the appearance or the form of things. But as Sontag says, if you leave the surface of things untouched in your pursuit of the hidden truth, you've actually not got much to say about the world as it is, because the world as it is, is experienced by almost everyone in the form that it currently takes. And you're not trying to change the form or even talk about the form because you are so preoccupied with your specialist knowledge of hidden insights. And that, she thinks, is the great vice of intellectual life in mid-century American and European thought. Another word for the thing that she's against, and it's the word that she uses and contrasts with innocence, is theory. There's much too much theorizing about what things mean and not enough description of what the things actually are, what form they take and how they might be experienced. And in being against interpretation, Sontag is primarily in this essay attacking the interpreters, which is why anyone reading this essay does start to wonder what does she think she is, but we'll park that. And the interpreters include academics who do this, and there's a lot of academic theory starting to bubble up at this time, but also all of the writers and critics and commentators who fill the pages of the smartest magazines, the magazines where all the big essays and book reviews are written, the magazines about art. There is an industry around interpretation and it's growing and it is populated by people who have signed up to a kind of unspoken agenda, which Sontag thinks is in the end self-defeating. Not only are they not revealing these hidden truths, but they're looking for them at the expense of the thing that really anyone who writes about art should focus on first, which is the thing itself. But she's not just attacking the interpreters of art. She also, in this essay, and she wrote it relatively young, in her early 30s, and it is astonishingly confident. She really knows not just what she thinks, but who she's against. She's also attacking artists whom she thinks cooperate in this enterprise. That is, the artists who think in order to be taken seriously by the critics and the people who write about art, we have to offer them stuff to interpret. So we need to produce art that has hidden depths. We need to produce art that's maybe full of symbolism and full of what look like keys to a secret language or another way of viewing the world beyond what's on the surface of, of the novel or the poem or whatever it is. And they give clues and signs. And it's a kind of complicity here the artists encourage the interpreters, the interpreters encourage the artists. And it is also an industry. It's one of the ways to get ahead in the world, to give the interpreters something to interpret. And then you'll be called a great artist if there's enough of it and if you do it well enough. And one person in this essay that Sontag singles out for that kind of, I want to call it criticism, but that's probably the wrong word in this context, so I'll just call it attack is the writer who, certainly in the middle of the 20th century, was often considered to be the greatest writer in the world. Thomas Mann, the German novelist, who in the 1930s and 1940s symbolised for many people high art in fictional form, and also the resistance of the intellectual and the writer against the barbarities of fascism. Mann, who had earlier in his life been a German nationalist, was a critic 
of Nazi Germany, but also left Germany and relocated to California. And in California, he was revered as the representative of the Republic of Letters. And one of the reasons that Sontag writes about man, and I'm aware that in saying this, I'm interpreting her essay, is because he, for her, represented one of the formative experiences of her life, which is something she wrote about 20 years later in another essay published in The New Yorker in the mid-1980s, by which time Susan Sontag was herself a world-famous writer and an intellectual celebrity, not quite on the Thomas Mann scale, but not far off, minus the Nobel Prize for Literature. In that essay, 20 years after Against Interpretation, Sontag describes an event that happened not quite 20, but nearly 20 years before she wrote Against Interpretation when she was 14. Susan Sontag herself was, like A.O. Scott, a bookish, intellectually insatiable, somewhat unhappy and insecure teenager who saw in the books on the shelves the possibility of escape or salvation and was hungry for ideas and the ideas that seemed to lie behind these books, a secret world of letters where interpretation would reveal freedom, freedom from the boringness and constraint of teenage life in America. And the person she revered above all else, she writes in the 1980s about her 1940s self, was Thomas Mann, the greatest writer in the world. And the book of his that she worshipped was The Magic Mountain. And part of the reason The Magic Mountain meant so much to her, age 14, is because it was full of suggestions of deeper meaning, and it was a novel of ideas, and the ideas seemed to touch on the deepest themes of Western philosophy, but also because, certainly on its surface, it was a novel about tuberculosis. That is, it's the story of a young man who goes to a sanatorium and the sanatorium is there primarily for patients who suffer from consumption. And one of the reasons this meant a lot to the young Susan Sontag is that her father had died when she was younger, when she was five or six years old, of TB. And her mother had remarried to a man called Sontag. And like James Baldwin, Susan Sontag took the name of her stepfather. But she had known as a very young child her biological father and her mother had always implied that there was something slightly shameful about his death, that to die of tuberculosis was a, a death not really to be spoken of. It was squalid, and indeed, most deaths from tuberculosis were squalid. But then in The Magic Mountain, she finds the greatest writer in the world writing this deeply symbolic, ideas-laden book that also seems to suggest, and I quote here from her essay in The New Yorker, that tuberculosis was revealed as the very epitome of pathetic and spiritual illness. It's reinvented here, as it was often by artists, as the disease that was somehow deeper than other diseases and had a kind of artistic quality to it. So Susan Sontag loved Thomas Mann, novelist of tuberculosis and ideas. At age 14, she found herself relocated to California because her mother, who moved around the country a lot, moved her there. So her childhood is partly unhappy because she's moving around a lot and having to make new friends. In California, she makes a new friend, a, a boy who's bookish like she is. And her new friend says, well, now you're in California, you know who else lives in California? Thomas Mann. Why don't we see if we can go and visit him? And the 14-year-old Susan Sontag is horrified by this idea. What could be more terrifying and more ridiculous than these two teenage kids inviting themselves 
to Thomas Mann's house. But her friend says, he's in the phone book. I mean, look, it says Thomas Mann, such and such boulevard. And here's the number. Why don't I call him up and say we'd like to come and see him and tell him that we love his books? And Sontag says to her friend, if you do that, I'll never forgive you. It'll be the most horrific, mortifying. Just don't. And of course, he's not going to invite us to tea because we're teenagers and he's Thomas Mann. And then her friend goes off and he calls the number, unbeknownst to Susan Sontag. And according to this version, Thomas Mann's wife answers the phone and passes the phone to her daughter, who is Mann's secretary, and this schoolboy says, we like your father's books, could we come and talk to him? And at the end of this conversation, they get invited to tea at Thomas Mann's house in California. So he relays this back to Susan, and she is indeed completely horrified, completely mortified, and thinks it's the most ridiculous thing she's ever heard. But they go. Somehow they're now trapped. They've been invited to tea by Thomas Mann, so you can't then not go. So they go. And it is, as described nearly 40 years later by Sontag, mortifying. You can almost hear her toes curling as she writes about it. Because he is what she describes him as in Against Interpretation. She calls him there an over-cooperative author. He gives too much to the people who want to interpret him and see him as the great novelist of ideas by encouraging them with hints of these ideas and giving them signs and symbols that they can find. And when they go and visit him, he immediately starts talking like a man who wants to let them know that they are right to think that his books are very profound and that they are in touch with the deepest currents of Western philosophical and intellectual thought, and that they should be looking for the clues and the signs. And he asks them what they like about his books, and they're trapped in this sort of dance of complicity between the artist and the interpreter. They nervously think he wants to hear that they think his books are deep, and he tells them that the books are deep. What did they read into them? And it's awful. They're just teenagers. They don't really know what they're talking about. It's miserable. It's embarrassing. He won't shut up. And in this essay, written 40 years later, Sontag devastatingly says, the great disappointment, one of the great disappointments of her life, was when she met him, she hoped that Thomas Mann, the author she admired above all others, would talk like a book, like one of his books. But, she says, in fact, he talked like a book review. And that was the disappointment. And that disappointment, which she writes about 20 years after Against Interpretation, is there in Against Interpretation. And in a way, that's what she's writing against. But as well as taking on the critics and the intellectuals and taking on the artists... In this short essay, she also takes on and frankly dismisses entire art forms as well. So she identifies two in particular that she thinks suffer from over-interpretation, the ones that are drowning in people talking about meaning at the expense of form. And they are, she says, fiction, novel writing, but all forms of fiction, and also drama, theatre. This is mid-60s America, and she thinks both fiction and theatre have become stale and sterile and increasingly predictable. And one of the reasons they're so predictable 
is because they are over-interpreted. And therefore, the artists themselves spend a lot of their time trying to offer up new things to be interpreted, rather than doing what art needs to do to stay alive and fresh, which is new ways of doing the thing itself. And the phrase she uses for what fiction and theatre lack is an avant-garde. And she is an advocate of the avant-garde. And by that, what she means in this essay are the people who are not trying to come up with new things to say. I think she thinks that that's easy. The easy thing is to have a new thought, a new idea. In a way, we're all always, all the time, probably thinking new things. None of us is the same. It's easy to think of a new thing to say. What's much, much harder is to come up with a new way of doing the thing itself, a new way of writing novels, a new way of staging a play. The art needs to be alive. People who focus not on wanting to say something that's sufficiently new that the interpreters will have something new to mine, but a new way of doing. The art form that she celebrates in Against Interpretation, the one that she thinks doesn't allow the space for the intellectuals to get their claws into it and overinterpret it in mid-1960s America, is cinema. And very briefly in this essay, she celebrates cinema, and presumably this is one of the things that had an impact on the man who was to become the film critic of the New York Times. She celebrates cinema as an art form, not here explicitly, that has a vibrant avant-garde, though I think that is implied here. There is more experimenting going on with form in cinema than there is in fiction and in theatre. But also it has, and these are the words that she uses of cinema, it has a clean quality, she says. It's clean, rapid and direct. In the sense that when you go to the cinema and watch a film, you don't really have time to waste your time trying to interpret it. When you're reading a book, you can put the book down. When you're looking at a painting, you can sit down and turn away and think and interpret and then look back and the painting will still be there. Even with plays, and I think the kind of plays that Sontag is thinking of are pretty stagey and slow, there's time for the critic to be interpreting while experiencing. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. But with cinema, Sontag thinks, luckily, there isn't that time because the next image will come and the images come in rapid succession. Bang, bang, bang. Good cinema, exciting cinema is really rapid. It's breathless. It takes you along. It can, of course, also have paused, lingering shots. But they will stand out too because they will be in contrast to the viewer's experience of the relentlessness of the image succeeding image. And it is true of film critics that one of the challenges of being a film critic is there often isn't time to write down your thoughts while you're watching a film. Film critics, I don't know if they still do, but they used to have special pens with a little light on them if they wanted to make notes while sitting in the darkened cinema. 
But it's really hard. I have once or twice tried it to write about a film, jot down your thoughts while you're watching it. Because if you turn away for 30 seconds, you will miss many, many images. And that's what Sontag likes about cinema. Clean, rapid, direct. It squeezes the space for intellectual criticism. Of course, there is then a huge industry of intellectual criticism around cinema that grows up and it employs a lot of people to be film critics. But at this time, Sontag thinks it has at least the advantage of its rapidity. And what's striking about how she describes cinema is that it does sound a bit like reading this essay by Susan Sontag. If I had to characterize it in three words, I think I would say clean, rapid, direct. It's a intellectual argument, and in its way, it's quite abstract, but it avoids, for the most part, any kind of jargon. The sentences are pretty short, they're punchy, and it is breathless. It really, really does not give you time to over-interpret it. When you finish it, this short essay, you feel like you've been given things to think about, but also you've experienced these thoughts more or less as directly as their author could communicate them. The form of this essay is no question a part of its appeal. So what else is there to say about against interpretation? Well, I want to say a few more things that have nothing to do with the essay, and this is not me trying to interpret it. This is me saying what it made me think when I was reading it, partly because of its form, its aphoristic style, these statements of certainty that lay down what is and what shouldn't be. And as I read it, an essay which is explicitly about art and how one should write about and think about art, I found myself instead thinking about politics and wondering whether the arguments in this essay from 1964 don't nonetheless, in a completely different way, I think in a way that Sontag herself almost certainly didn't intend, hold for politics now. And I want to offer four ways in which I think you could say something about this essay says something about contemporary politics. The first is that what I take to be the central argument here, I think captures something about what's gone wrong with the way many people, and I completely include myself in this as someone who spends quite a lot of my professional life trying to interpret politics. It captures something about what's gone wrong with the over-interpretation of politics. That in politics, and I felt this for a while, but I was exhilarated to read it in this essay. We spend too much time looking for the meaning behind the thing and not enough time thinking about the thing itself, that is the form of it. Whether the thing is a an action, a speech or a choice of words by a politician, an election result. So election results happen. And the majority of commentary, the overwhelming majority of commentary about elections, say it again, I'm completely guilty of this myself, is trying to understand what did it mean? What does this election result mean? How does it fit into some hidden or unspoken set of patterns in contemporary politics, the deeper trends, the, the forces at work? Rather than asking maybe, what is the thing itself? Not what did this election result mean, but what kind of election was it? 
What form did it take? We look for the meaning behind the content and we don't spend enough time with politics asking about the form. And I think in contemporary politics, form is often at least as important as content and certainly hidden meaning. And by neglecting form, that explains part of what I have come to think of as the sterility or futility of a lot of writing about political life at the moment, again, including the stuff that I do, that it it misses something. And it misses something not because it doesn't try to look behind the form of politics, but because it spends so much time trying to look behind the form of politics and not focusing on what form did this event take? Isn't that potentially what's significant about it? What is significant about the election of Donald Trump? There are a million things that could be said about that, and I'm going to say a few in a moment. But one possible answer to that question is, Donald Trump's election can only be understood through the form that it took. He became president because America has an electoral college system. What is the hidden meaning behind the electoral college system? These days, there almost isn't one. It's just the form that this takes. But that really matters for understanding the outcome. Or to give another example, and these examples are more banal, I think, than anything that Sontag had in mind, because she's thinking about art, and I'm talking about electoral systems. But one example that I'm often struck by in recent British politics is the movement, which over 10 years was crucially important in the life of the British state for Scottish independence, which has almost certainly peaked and is in decline now. Who knows where it's going to end up? But for at least a decade, the SNP were the dominant party in Scotland, and they shaped much of British political life. And the SNP over that period, it varied a bit, but it didn't vary a huge amount, captured, spoke for, represented roughly 45% of Scottish voters. That was their the basis of their support. And it's a lot. 45% is a lot, particularly in a multi-party system. Because in Scotland, you could vote Labour, you could vote for the Conservatives, you could vote for the Liberal Democrats, you could vote for the Greens. At least five parties. To get nearly half the vote is enormously powerful. And you could ask of that, what does it mean? What does it mean that nearly half of Scots were willing to support this party? How do you understand that through the deeper currents of history and political rhetoric and what lies behind that rhetoric? What was Nicola Sturgeon really after? What was she up to? Was she really after independence? All of those questions can be asked, have been asked a million times. But there's another way you could think about it, which is actually the most important thing about the SNP and its support in Scotland is the form that it took. Form mattered more than content. And the illustration of that is across three different electoral systems, 45% of people supporting the SNP and what it stands for gives you three completely different answers to the fundamental question. In the Scottish independence referendum, 45% means clear defeat. Scottish independence doesn't happen and the SNP are defeated. 55 to 45 is a decisive result. And the SNP were the losers. So 45% means you're a loser. That's not the hidden meaning of that result. That's the actual meaning of that result. In Scottish parliamentary elections, under a complex electoral system that includes proportional representation, 
45% was just enough to give the SNP a majority in the Scottish Parliament. Scottish Parliament's system was designed to try and preclude any party having that kind of majority. But the SNP got one, and so they were able to govern Scotland, as they have done. And they were able to govern Scotland for a significant period, no longer, but for a significant period as the majority party. Same number, completely different result. And then in the Westminster system, 45% of the vote, this is give or take, but roughly 45% of the vote under a first-past-the-post system, gave the SNP not quite, but nearly every single seat in Scotland. In 2015, I think it was 56 out of 59 seats. So something close to total, unanimous, overwhelming dominance. Same phenomenon, 45%. The form it takes either means defeat or majority or a kind of absolute control, overwhelming control. Though in the Westminster system, the form of Westminster politics means that the SNP are excluded from government. But that's not what's at stake here. What matters is what the SNP stands for. But you could also argue that actually, this is what matters. That there is no way of understanding politics unless you're willing to spend quite a lot of time addressing the thing itself, the form of politics. There is a line in Against Interpretation where Sontag says, she thinks we should spend more time talking about, I quote, how it is what it is, rather than to show what it means. How, rather than what. And I think we don't spend enough time, when we talk about politics, talking about how, because we spend too much time talking about what. And if you spend all your time talking about what, what is the meaning, what does this represent, what's the long-term prospect, all of that, all of the stuff of political commentary, it's not just that you neglect the how, but you allow the how to be uninterrogated. For instance, there is a real question to be asked of those three results for the SNP. Which is the one that we want to embrace, stand behind, or alternatively reject and try and change in the form it took? The second thing that struck me about this essay in contemporary politics is what it has to say about experience. Sontag argues that too much interpretation or criticism neglects experience or takes it for granted. So you experience a work of art, but that's not what matters. The immediacy of experience can be assumed to be relatively easily understood, what it means to encounter this thing. The harder thing, the more important thing, is to know what lies behind the encounter, what the artist wanted to convey beyond the immediate experience of the encounter. And she thinks it's very, very dangerous to make the assumption that experience can be taken for granted, that we know what experience means. You, you see the picture, you see the colour, we know what it is to experience that colour. The question is, what did it mean that it was all blue? And she thinks the blueness is the thing. The reason it's dangerous writing in mid-1960s America is she recognises, and she's right then, and she would be right many times over now, that to take experience for granted is to miss the phenomenon of 20th, 21st century life, the superabundance of experience. There are so many more ways of experiencing things. And this is part of the industry of production, including the production of culture, but I would also say including the production of political information. 
that you can't take for granted how people experience it. You can't assume there is something called the experience of a work of art or a piece of political information, and that what matters is what people do with that experience and how they try and find something that goes beyond it or behind it. In a world of overproduction and overconsumption of experience, experience is out of control. And the critic, the intellectual, the artist who neglects this will probably miss the most important things that are going on, which is the change is happening at the level of experience, not necessarily at the level of meaning. And the people who are focused on meaning are missing the real possibilities of change. And I think that's true of contemporary politics too. There are so many ways in which people can experience politics now. And the preoccupation with what it means, what its significance is, the intellectual preoccupation with significance, has, I think, in recent years, neglected the variety of experience, which often is the decisive factor in political outcomes. And I think many people, including many intellectuals, are conscious of this. It's so easy to miss what's really going on by looking for the deeper message or the deeper story and not focusing on, in a world of new forms of information technology, the how of how information is communicated, the how of political experience, which might be completely unknown to the intellectual commentator who doesn't experience it in the same way as many people, most people, all sorts of different kinds of people who are nothing like the intellectual commentator. And if you take experience for granted, you will literally miss what's going on. Two more things to say, and these are both explicitly about Donald Trump, who clearly is not the subject of Against Interpretation. I did find myself thinking, I wonder if Susan Sontag met Donald Trump, and thinking she probably did, because she was very famous in New York in the 1980s when he was becoming famous, not in the way he is now, but famous then as this ridiculous but compelling mogul character, the Donald Trump of the art of the deal, a ubiquitous presence on the, the New York scene. And so I googled the question, did Susan Sontag meet Donald Trump? And what came up, I didn't go very deep, so I may have missed it. And other people might know, maybe she even wrote somewhere about Donald Trump. But the first thing that comes up is a story from the New York Times from the late 1980s, a gossipy story where a journalist has gone to a, a literary party, a, a, an awards party and a fundraiser, and is just writing down the stuff that's overheard, the gossip, yeah. the thing, not, not the hidden meaning behind the thing, just the thing. And Susan Sontag appears in just one sentence as the journalist wanders the room and hears this author bitch about that author and so on and so forth. Here's Susan Sontag say the words, I want to meet Donald Trump. Now, I don't know if she then did meet Donald Trump, but given that Susan Sontag, on the whole, met all the people she wanted to meet, and given that Donald Trump was the kind of narcissist who always wanted to be met by people who wanted to meet him, maybe she did meet Donald Trump. But that's not what this essay is about. The reason that I found myself thinking about Trump was, and these pull in different directions, two possible suggestions, not interpretations, but suggestions that come out of this essay. One of which is, it does read a bit like a warning against one of the things that has become prevalent in contemporary politics, which is conspiratorial thinking. 
One of the things that Sontag describes as being wrong with interpretation is that it looks for hidden meaning. It looks for the thing that is secret and behind the surface of art or events or words or ideas, that there must be a secret language which is known to the people who are initiated, and it's the job of the interpreter to help us see what's really going on. And it is a bit like conspiracy theorizing. That is one of the forms that theory can take. And it is definitely one of the forms that theory can take in contemporary politics on both sides of the political divide. But it is, in many ways, embodied in the idea of Donald Trump, both the fact that for his opponents, part of the challenge of dealing with Trump is to get him locked into what seems obviously like the conspiracy. And this is happening right now to make sure that Trump is nailed as part of the conspiracy that he encouraged to overturn the results of the 2020 election, to see behind whatever is going on the real story, which is that Trump is fully complicit in this, as it is for many of his critics, attempted coup, and for the supporters of Donald Trump, to see him as the victim of conspiracy theorizing, the Russia hoax, the idea that Trump could only have been elected with the help of Vladimir Putin, the thought for Trump supporters that his opponents are always trying to make him part of a conspiracy when they're the ones who are involved in the conspiracy against him. And for each coup, there is an accusation of counter-coup. And this all comes from the desire to find what is true behind what is going on. And you might say, but isn't the difference with contemporary politics that Sontag is talking about the intellectual version of this, indeed the over-intellectualized version of this, whereas in contemporary politics, conspiracy theorizing is not particularly intellectual. I don't think that's true. I think one of the features of conspiracy theories across the political spectrum, and I say this as someone who spent five years on an academic project that tried to understand what the current age of conspiracy theorizing means, is that they aspire to the level of intellectual analysis. Conspiracy theories often try and present themselves as the truth because they can be dressed up as serious analysis with footnotes and references and links and ties and all sorts of smart, complicated evidence of how this connects to that, just like the intellectuals do, in order to counter the hold of the intellectuals. It is also true, in my experience, that intellectuals are not remotely immune to this way of thinking. Some of the most intelligent and intellectual people that I know are also prone to see the world in conspiratorial terms. And the response to Trump is some evidence of that, I think. But the other thought I had, which pulls in a different direction, came out of another essay in the New York Times that I read just a few weeks ago about Trump's most recent indictment for the conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And this is an essay by Michael Wolff, a man who knows Trump well, knew him in his ridiculous 80s, 90s days, and knew him in his, frankly, equally ridiculous presidential days, had weirdly unfettered access to the Trump White House and used it to write three very gossipy and also excoriating books about the Trump presidency. And Michael Wolf says in this essay, he fears that the mistake that the people who are trying to pin Trump to this conspiracy are making is that they think that there must be meaning behind his words. 
and that the meaning behind his words can be shown in a court of law to be that he was involved in, complicit in, intended the outcome that his words seem to suggest that he sought. And Will says, if you know Donald Trump and if you've known him across his career, you know that often his words don't mean anything. They are just words. He talks batshit crazy nonsense in a kind of stream of consciousness way. It's free association. It's radical in its refusal to abide by the conventional forms of political speech, partly because it is all about just getting the words out and rarely does he even think about the substance behind the words or what they mean. And it is certainly true that Donald Trump is not someone who's coming up with new ideas in politics. I don't think Donald Trump has had an original political thought in his life. His politics is spectacularly derivative. Trump's originality doesn't lie in the content of his political beliefs. It lies in the form that they take. And the form they take is this sort of radical, free associative, stream of consciousness way of communicating, which nonetheless is a real way of communicating. And it's experienced viscerally by many people, including myself. I used to, I don't so much anymore, but I used to spend quite a lot of time watching Trump's speeches, his endless campaign addresses, even when he wasn't campaigning before huge crowds live, and being struck by the weird genius of them, how completely compelling they were at the same time as being almost completely devoid of substance. And I was trying to think, what would the word be for this way of doing politics? And one possible word that was suggested to me by reading Susan Sontag's Against Interpretation is avant-garde. What if Trump is the avant-garde of contemporary democratic politics? He's not thinking new thoughts, but he's doing the thing itself differently in a way that is radically different and is changing things. It has completely changed the possibilities of democratic politics. And there is nothing in the idea of the avant-garde that says it has to be progressive or liberal. That's an illusion of meaning. That's the mistake that the interpreters make. The avant-garde, the point of it, is that it could be anything, but it is change. And it can change everything, not necessarily through the avant-garde artist, but what follows in the wake of the avant-garde artist. I don't think Trump is an artist. I don't think he's a political genius. But I think he has changed a lot, and he may have changed a lot while what Wolf says being true, that the words don't mean anything because the change is not at the level of meaning. It's at the level of form and how that form is experienced. Two final things, because I don't want to end talking about Donald Trump. Susan Sontag herself, later in her life, kind of repudiated this essay in the sense that she described her early essays that made her name, this one and another one equally famous, called Notes on Camp, as this was her word, juvenilia, early stuff. She wanted to be taken seriously, not as an essayist, but as a writer of fiction. She wrote some pretty avant-garde fiction, including a celebrated short story in the mid-1980s, which is about how people talk about people talking about dying of AIDS. But also a conventional historical pot boiler that she thought was her masterpiece called The Volcano Lover, which is about Nelson and Emma Hamilton in Naples. 
And later in life, she became, I think it's fair to say, a somewhat ridiculous or easily caricatured figure. There is a brilliant, hilarious essay in the London Review of Books, one of the many essays about Susan Sontag that suggest, among other things, Susan Sontag was really good at inspiring people to write interesting things when they wrote about her. This one is by the literary critic Terry Castle. It's called Desperately Seeking Susan, and it's about her relationship with Sontag in the last 10 years of Sontag's life and just how ridiculous it was and sort of how ridiculous Sontag was, larger than life but also absurd, incredibly vain, self-important, thought of herself as one of the world's great writers of fiction, obsessed with, and it was genuinely true, her courage in Sarajevo in 1993 where she lived for months during the siege and put on a production of Waiting for Godot but wanting everyone to know that she was not just the greatest novelist in the world but the bravest one too. And Castle writes very funnily and affectionately about this ridiculous, completely compelling figure who took Terry Castle to a dinner party with Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson, and then completely ignored her because she wasn't a celebrity, who tried to show Terry Castle on a shopping street in Palo Alto what it was like to be under sniper fire in Sarajevo by ducking in and out of shops and pretending that someone was shooting at her. What this essay suggests about Susan Sontag is that she was, in some ways, the embodiment of some of the things that she wrote, because this essay is so compelling, being beyond interpretation. There's there's not a lot to say about what Susan Sontag means by this point. You just have to experience the thing itself. Ridiculous. Magnificent. And then the last thing I want to say, which is that I haven't mentioned the most famous line in the essay. The most famous line in the essay is the last line, aphoristic to the end. The essay ends with a blunt statement, which reads, I quote, in place of a hermeneutic, we need an erotics of art. And when I was thinking about how this essay might apply to politics, I thought, well, if that's going to be true, then it's going to have to be possible to replace the word art with the word politics in that sentence. And for me to be able to say, in place of a hermeneutic, we need an erotics of politics. And as soon as I found myself thinking that, I realized how embarrassingly ridiculous it is. I have no idea what that would mean. I don't want to think about the erotics of politics in the context of Donald Trump or anyone else. It sounds to me like gibberish. It's absolutely at the limit of what you can say about this essay. And I'm not going to try and argue for an erotics of politics. The last line of this essay is the point where that kind of thing has to stop. And one of the things this essay very, very clearly conveys is that when you are doing, I guess, what I'm doing here, you have to know when to stop. We are nearly at the end of this summer season about the great 20th century essays, but there are two more things to come. We're going to do one extra episode next week about one more essay, Joan Didion, The White Album. But also I'm going to try and answer some of your questions that have been coming in about these essays and about some of the things that I've said about them. And we'll be putting that out as an extra episode too. If you do have questions, please get them to us on Twitter at PPF ideas, or you can email us ppfideas at gmail.com. I'm not sure I'll be able to answer all of them. We've already had a lot of really great questions, but we would love to have some more. And join us next week for the White Album. My name's David Runciman, and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. 
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.